0: Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John
1: Wood.
2: Welcome to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 49. Thanks for joining me today. Happy Sterile Processing Week to everyone. I hope you and your department are celebrating this week in style. You know, I've always said that sterile processing has the best potlucks. You know, we do a couple things well in sterile processing besides sterilizing instruments. And that's cook good food. And one other thing we do well is throw a great party. Just do me a favor. When you're throwing your party, when you're having your great food, don't heat up your food in the autoclave. You know, today, the 15th, starts the Isham Virtual Conference and Expo. So it's not too late to register for that exciting event. You know, just go on to the Isham website, register today for the conference because it starts today and it's running through the 28th. You know, I just want to say thanks to everyone who has shown interest in the Step Weight Loss Contest. You know, if you haven't joined, you can still join, although you will be starting a little late in the game. But if you're interested, you can still join. Just email me at podcast at isham.org. And then, as I promised everyone else, my numbers so far uh, for weight, I'm starting at a whopping 252. So I've got a lot to lose. So good luck to everybody on that one. Uh, My steps for this week. So the first week, October 4th through the 10th, 119,389. So kind of a slow start, not too bad. So if you're in the challenge, keep up the good work. And I will report out my numbers and my progress each episode. Make sure that you are keeping track of yours. So we took a little break, but today we're back celebrating sterile processing week with another episode, episode number four in the last 100 yards. So let's not waste any more time and let's get to it. The last 100 yards. The Last 100 Yards is an experience like no other, an in-depth series that focuses on different issues and topics in ways we never have before from a 360 perspective. Join me as we investigate topics affecting sterile processing and packaging with the help of scientists, manufacturers, engineers, and sterile processing professionals just like you. Partner with me and the KIP committee as we explore The Last 100 Yards. All right, so today we're back with the KIP committee, again, uh, the last 100 yards, and today we're discussing event-related sterility. So let's start off with something that's familiar to folks working in the healthcare facilities, and that's talking about event-related sterility as we understand it in healthcare.
0: Well, thanks, John. I could start this off. This is Klasik with Isham, and event-related sterility is when we have a sterile package and it becomes contaminated. And so, ways to contaminate that package are based on maybe handling the way it's transported or stored. For instance, if a package comes out of a sterilizer and it's been dried off, and I throw it over to, to Dave or Chris, the way that they can't catch it, the, the impact of that could immediately contaminate it. And that would be considered as an event. Also, events include, you know, if someone's taking a sterile package and maybe they're going to the cafeteria with it on their tray. That is an event. A puncture obviously is an event. Any fluids going on the package is definitely an event. Anything that would open that package, any cause at all, thinking that the package has been compromised. And that couldn't even occur in our sterile storage. If for instance, we had an excessively high humidity And that means that there would be a lot of moisture in the environment. That could actually affect the uh, packaging integrity. A package falling on the floor could also impact the integrity of the package because we don't know what happens inside that package once it hits the floor. There's a lot of events that can cause um, the breach of the sterility of the package. We have to do all we can to maintain the sterility of the package.
3: That's a great point, Sue. This is Dave Jagrossi. You know, this as opposed to, and where we came from historically, was that we would put a date on something and we would say, this is sterile until uh, a year from now, but we have to take into consideration that there could be events, as Sue defined, that could compromise that sterility.
4: Yeah, I, I, this is Ralph uh, here. And I, I, I mean, you guys are really describing event, sterility, event related sterility really, really well. I think in my experience in dealing with users of sterile packaging, there often is a confusion event relate amongst many that event-related sterility means indefinite shelf life. I think that's something that we've tried to help the industry understand, that in fact, event-related sterility does not mean indefinite shelf life. It means that if something happens before the shelf life has expired, that that event means that that package needs to be taken out of service. Again, if it's something that was sterilized by the healthcare facility, reprocessed, right? So um, it's really important to understand that something that's on the shelf can't be on the shelf longer than its stated shelf life. And an event related
3: sterility doesn't mean indefinite shelf life. Do you guys come across that and you're dealing with, with your colleagues? I think that's great, Ralph. Um, that's a great point because it's not something that you can just sort of declare. Like we're an event related facility. You have to have good practices in place. You have to define what those events are. And it could be as simple as putting items on the shelf. We always have to practice what's called FIFO. First in is the first out. So if you don't have these good practices in, in place, you could be compromising the shelf life of that product. Hey, uh, Dave, I'm sorry. I'm going to use an old joke. There's FIFO
4: and LIFO, right? And then yeah, there's yeah. another one. It's called it's called FISH. First in still here. And those are the <laughs> things that have been sitting on the shelf longer than than they probably should. And it's time to take them out of service or reprocess them or, or
3: the in, yeah, inventory. They can, yeah. they can go into the SPD museum, right? Of but, I, I,
4: I, but you know, that does make me think exactly what you're talking about. But what makes me think about it, I, I maybe this is an oversimplification, but I often will say, you know, event related, and you guys again describe it really well. I always say time is an event, or elapsed time is an event. And that's the way to think of maybe an expiration date. If it's hit that expiration date, that's elapsed time. Or if your facility, uh, you know, many facilities will say, hey, one year, no matter what it is, if it's been on the shelf for one year, we're going to reprocess it, or two years. I mean, I, uh, but if it's been sitting there for three, four, five years, then maybe it's fish. And <laughs> so... Correct. Maybe, that's
0: a new definition of fish i never heard that one but you're right that you know ralph if it's been sitting on the shelf that's long it is time to take it down and to reprocess it and some of the healthcare facilities especially surgery we have this mindset that there's a tray on the shelf no one ever uses it but just in case they do we have it and that shelf that tray may end up sitting on the shelf for quite a while it could actually be years i remember one of the facilities we had a certain doctors try sitting on the shelf and the doctor had left and I kept saying, we got to get this thing taken down and reuse the instruments. And his favorite nurses said, no, he will be back. He never came back.
3: And those are the, the types of dealings that we have to work through. Correct. I think that's so an important element of any good, robust, um, thorough processing department is unless it's trauma related devices that we hopefully never use. Because that's always a good day. Why do you need something on the shelf for over a year? So that really gets into utilization. Yeah, yeah, hi, this is Chris Panucci here. I I think that brings up an interesting point that a lot
5: of hospitals face or really need to take a look at is what are your truly emergent sets? Like what do you truly need to keep around for an emergency? And what what are you just hanging on to that you don't need that you're just you find you're reprocessing it? periodically all the time, and it's just never used. And maybe at that point, it's time to sit down with some key people and decide, do we really need this? Or, you know, sure
3: how, are we, how are we going to handle this? And Chris, we, sure. as you know, Chris, we we sometimes have what we call dead doctor instruments. You you say, who does this belong to? And they say, oh, that's Doctor X. And you say, well, does he still work here? <laughs> no, he retired five years ago, and actually, he passed away a year ago. So, you know, the instruments are still on the shelf, and you know, nobody ever really looked at that utilization and said, do we really need it? You know.
0: Exactly. The other thing, you know, in in uh, hospitals, we really do handle the, these packages a lot. Even when we clean the shelves, it's important to note that that could, you know, cause an event. Because if we clean a shelf and we leave the shelf wet and we put the packages on it, packages are considered contaminated. So that too would be a, an an event.
1: That's interesting, Sue. So if there, this is Catherine you're saying that if there is some sort of a a cleaning fluid or some sort of solvent or something that that you all would consider that an event and that those packages should be either reprocessed or replaced or thrown out? Oh yeah,
0: because you can't have fluid by sterile packages,
1: absolutely. And this is for not just stuff that you all would process internally, but this would be for goods purchased sterile? Both. Yeah that that's really interesting um to hear that. I mean it's great to hear that from the packaging side. We we love hearing that. But, you know, this whole discussion on event related sterility, that's definitely intriguing for us on the device side and like the manufacturer side because that's not a term that we use often, you know, a lot of the stuff when we manufacture it, the manufacturer will either provide it non-sterile and the and they will provide on how to sterilize it and then the you know shelf life so to speak is sort of up to the you know materials that you all the manufacture the materials that you all are using to reprocess or maybe hospital policy or if it's something that we purchase that we sell sterile that would be something that we do all the testing for internally and we say that that product is sterile until that expiration date comes of time. So that event-related sterility is definitely a new term for, I think, medical device manufacturers that sell products sterile that we don't really sort of play in that sandbox of. That's a good point. I I think
5: one of the most interesting things that came out of the whole um, KIPP project was getting end users and packaging engineers together and actually having a dialogue. And I think it was eye-opening for some people to actually see what these packages go through. And the engineer might have just, when they designed it, they thought it was just getting shipped somewhere, put on a shelf and used. And then sort of the realization came out that, yeah, the end user, it's sitting on a shelf. And then we put it in a box and send it to the surgery center down the road. And they don't use it and it comes back. And there's a lot more handling and wear and tear on these things. And I think some people even realized.
1: And that is a huge part of what we're trying to learn and figure out on the device side of things, on the manufacturer side of things, because you're right. When we're doing our testing, we test for it to get to the hospital. You know, we send it through a standard method for that distribution conditioning. We do aging conditioning, and we do testing to show that the product has not had a breach of sterility through those, but there's not all that additional handling that we test through because there aren't standards for that. And it's sort of this unknown area because every product will have a different experience throughout, you know, its last hundred yards. And that's really what this group is trying to figure out and, and get down to the nitty gritty of because that all that handling, like you mentioned, you know, we go back to that survey that we had back in December. And that was one of the big aha moments for us is just how many times things get touched, how many times they get, even internally, they just get shipped to another, maybe to another hospital on the same group of hospitals or chains of them or whatever the some different facilities and that's again not something that really get much feedback on from the device manufacturer side of things
0: well in healthcare facilities we try to protect the sterility in every method we can if we do ship it to another facility we make sure that it's protected from the environmental contaminants now as we're working on the AMETIR on external transport, we're really going to need manufacturers' expertise and research on that. It will really help us with that. But also, I, you know, I want to ease your fears because in the healthcare facilities, we do handle these packages delicately, although not everybody, but a majority of the hospital personnel do. You know, store them in an environment that is monitored. We monitor the temperature, the humidity. And we make sure there's not a lot of traffic coming and going in the area. You know, we um, really protect the, um, the environment from any contaminants as best as we can. And the same with when we're transporting them. They should be transported in a closed cart. And if the, if the um, supplies do go into an area that they shouldn't be, perhaps if an item goes into the decontamination room or even outside uncovered, uh, that's considered as a breach of sterility, and it needs to either be reprocessed or, if it, you know, a disposable item, we need to discard it because our patients are number one, and so we do take as many steps as possible to maintain the sterility
4: of our packages. Um, I just, I just want to pick up on one thing that Kat was saying, and then uh, because just to explain, like a little more detail of the testing that that the device manufacturer or the packaging manufacturer both are doing. To simulate use. So, you know, there's accelerated aging and we could talk about that some more later, but, and then there's real-time aging and the purpose of the real-time aging in part is to also uh, have a physical challenge to the package. So, you know, and usually what that is, it's, it's, it's a mock sterile processing area, sterile storage area, I should say, with shelving and and then the items are rotated Let's say monthly on a periodic basis. But what we're not doing is modeling what's actually happening at the healthcare facility. There's not modeling stuff going on a case cart, going up to the OR, going back into the case cart, coming back down. I think that's, I think that's some of what Kat was getting to, if I can just kind of highlight that.
1: Absolutely. And and like you mentioned, that additional handling and that additional, um, I guess life of that product while it's not time that's the that's what we're hoping to find out what is really going on so that we can better do our testing to sort of ease the minds of those in the healthcare facilities that you know yes we should handle everything with care but we really also have done a robust design and a robust validation on that on those materials that we know that Ideally you don't stick it in your pocket, but maybe if something happens one day and it does accidentally fall in someone's pocket, <laughs> it will still be okay to
3: use, right? Right. And I'm, and it's I think it's important to note just because in our in our conversation we had mentioned that in in practice we we don't base it on a date when we do event related sterility. So in other words, we treat manufactured goods. We, we put those to the test as far as if there's an event. What we'll typically never do is exceed an, an ultimate outdate on a manufactured good from outside the hospital. We, we never exceed those. We do, we do consider that an event, to, to Ralph's point earlier.
6: Yes. So, guys, this is Austin. Um, when an event happens, what are some of the questions that go through your mind um, to think, should I throw this out or, or keep it and use it?
0: Well, for me, it's would I use it on my loved one?
2: So we all cringe when we when we hear somebody has uh, an item in their pocket, right? Or, or something drops on the floor, right? And they pick it up and, and they go use it. So what is the thinking about why? What's the rationale of why we shouldn't use that? I think that's, you know, people want to know or be clear. Here's the clear reason why you shouldn't use it. You know, we say we don't use it, but why?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think Kat in our day-to-day lives, we as packaging engineers think through this all the time. Um, Kat and Ralph were mentioning earlier that medical device manufacturers, or at least how our industry is thinking right now, really validate and design packaging up to the hospital dock. So it's almost like there's this invisible force field of um, how we do testing for what happens in the last 100 yards. Furthermore, um, getting to that aseptic presentation of the sterile package into the sterile field. Um, So why? Um, It all comes down to risk. Like Sue said, would you put um, your potential, your loved one in potential harm or risk? So um, I think it probably comes down to healthcare associated infections. Could any microorganisms be transferred into a small hole within the package? Um, could that get into the patient, into the sterile field, and contaminate um, different parts of the procedures, um, things of that nature?
3: And, and Austin, yeah. this is Dave. You know, it it is. It's a you know, there's almost a mental decision tree that has to take place. And as as an independent consultant, when I go into a lot of facilities, I'll ask, you know, what is your what is your policy? And they'll say we're event related. But then it's just like a statement, like it the, the policy is a statement. You know, we're an event-related sterility uh facility. And you know, but then I see some really robust policies that might give examples like Sue and Chris and everyone mentioned earlier, like if it drops on the floor or if it's in an area where the temperature deviates. So it is really helpful to have a robust policy, not a statement. You have to have a policy and some examples and i think this came up in our um survey as well that there's not a lot of training around this you might get some initial training upon hire you know and then you're at the facility for 10 20 years and it, you know <laughs> event related, our storage and packaging in this whole area is never really covered again you know so um you really have to be you know it, there's different scenarios where hey i'm picking a case cart and it's for tomorrow whereas there's a patient on the table and that's really where critical thinking and using, you know, your team members around you to say, here's what happened. Here was the scenario. Is this a life and death situation? Um, you know, because it could vary. If, if it's for tomorrow, we're going to, and you heard, you, the industry folks all heard us say this. We use the term <laughs> when, when in doubt, throw it out, right, Austin? So, um, Whatever we mm-hmm. have time to reprocess. Uh, to Sue's point and, and that a loved one or do you want it used on you, you're going to reprocess it. But there are scenarios where the patient's on the table and it's it's critical, you know.
6: Mm-hmm. And so it, I've heard a couple descriptions of what an event is, you know, lapse time or, or maybe a package dropping on the floor. Are there any other like um, key examples that, that you guys see day in, day out?
0: Well, if I looked under a sink and saw a sterile package, that is considered contaminated. Or on a window seal, I would consider that contaminated. If the cafeteria, <laughs> I would consider that contaminated. If I saw a package that was a couple packages with a rubber band around them, I would say that's just way too much compression there, and that pack those packages are considered as contaminated. If it fell on the floor. Um, if it was in a dusty environment, maybe it was sitting somewhere in a sh- on a shelf, and the shelf was very dusty. You know, that would be cause for concern. And we also have to take into account, you know, when it's open. But if it was in an environment that I thought, hmm, this environment probably has not been under, you know, a really good sterile environment, I would question it and pull it.
1: And Sue, you brought up a lot of things there, so. To kind of circle back on the question John had a little earlier too was you know what is it that these events can really do to the packaging so some of those things that you mentioned like yeah the earlier the fluid on on the product you know on the package you know is that considered contaminated absolutely it could be considered contaminated um, you know one of those things is if there has been something else occurring to that product there might be a pinhole or a channel and any of and any uh, You know fluid or something could get into the pouch or any microorganisms could get into the pouch through that and that could cause a contamination uh what does the fluid itself do to the packaging materials does that potentially cause any breakdown or degradation of the material Uh, you mentioned that windowsill uv light is notorious for you know sunlight and uv light is notorious for actually degrading materials tyvek is one of those that we know will degrade over time in presence of UV so those kind of things can lead to those breaches of sterility that cause that you know event to really occur if you have and then another one that you mentioned the rubber bands rubber bands folding things like that that all will put strain on the polymer chains of those films as they're folded and that can all cause an eventual pinhole or something to break down so the reason that those events are there and that you know we want to make sure that we're not using products after that is because all of those events can cause some form of a breach of sterility and then through that breach of sterility it goes back to that risk of can something migrate through that pinhole, that channel or whatever it is, can it migrate into the package and, in, and onto the product that would then somehow find its way to the sterile field and into the patient.
4: Just wanted to ask some question, Dave, because I think I, I, you know, I, I, I participate in ASTM uh, mm-hmm. fo 2 which is about packaging, but I am not a packaging engineer, not even close. But uh-huh. I'm just fascinated by what these guys do and the testing they do. Can you guys talk? And I was looking at Cat and Austin. You guys talk a little bit about what's a pinhole when you're testing? Because I think we're so reliant upon visual inspection. We should be. I don't mean to minimize that. Yeah. But there's things that you know you're testing at things that
6: might not even be. Easily visible, so I don't know if you guys could talk about that. Just from here. that's a that's a really good. Point also. I'm glad you uh, transitioned us to this discussion topic. So maybe to calibrate everyone on the line, uh, we use limit of detection in a lot of our package integrity test methods. So, for instance, for for reference, a hair is about 25 microns. So. One of the test methods we use is ASTM F1886, which is uh, visual inspection for seal integrity of flexible packaging. So if you think about it, quite literally, somebody, if they're conducting this test method, would be looking at a, a pouch at the seal areas, looking for a 75 micron pinhole or defect. So think of that like three hairs, for instance. We also conduct a test method called uh, f 2096, which is um, bubble emission testing for about 250 uh, microns as the limit of detection. So, you know, 10 times 10 hairs right Um, for that test method. What we do is we submerge a package underwater and inflate it with air to see if at a minimum test pressure pressure that's established, do we see a stream of bubbles that would indicate there's a 250 micron defect. And kind of to tie some of the topics we've talked about in previous podcast episodes, um, conditioning testing, those package integrity tests are actually occurring after we go through accelerated aging testing, real-time aging testing and the simulation to see did those conditions or hazard modes um, that medical device manufacturers uh, subject packaging to um, lead to these pinholes. Um, and other defects we see in packaging and cat and Kat, um, step in, it, um, there's something to add here is tears rips, other things. Um, like imagine um, a foil bag. If you continuously crease it, you get what's called dead folding, which leads to very large and uh, gross defects in a package.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. That continued um, strain along those folds, you can get those and you can also get uh, what we call seal creeps or channels along the seal. So that's something that, you know, you may something may drop and you have this large and you have large or, you know, I'm using air quotes on a podcast, I know, but, you know, this large, uh, Force that drops on it and that product can actually wedge itself into the seal and sort of that can cause some seal creep that could potentially lead to you know what would be you know an opening in the pouch and we can see that too and you know we even see sometimes we'll see delamination in materials a lot of those films that we use are actually multi-layer so while it's a clear film it might actually have multiple layers or like the foils those can have layers in them and through repeated exposure to um, some of that folding, moisture, different different cleaning solvents, and things like that that can actually cause some of those layers to start pulling apart.
0: I'm curious, do you also test for temperature and humidity?
1: Yes, uh, we do that uh, during some. We'll do some of it during aging. Um, For accelerated aging, we typically are testing our our packaging. It's not under humidity, but it's under temperatures up to 60C, depending on what the product and the packaging can withstand. So we know that it can, you know, sit prolonged exposure to high temperatures. When we're doing our distribution conditioning, a lot of times what we'll also do is we'll do an environmental conditioning. And that we have the extremes that you would see during that transport. And we'll hold that for periods of time before we even get to that distribution portion of our condition. And we'll do the extremes of, you know, shipping in Alaska in the middle of February, or shipping in Florida at just about any time, super humid and hot, or you know, Death Valley and it's 50 something, you know, degrees Celsius, 100 and something degrees Fahrenheit, in and it's but it's arid yet. Yeah. So it's dry. So we'll do all of those conditionings even prior to doing any sort of a simulated shake, rattle, roll t- kind of test on it.
3: Sure. Which leads to the <laughs> a, a other question of uh, vibration, you know, because we're putting these things on case carts and they're bouncing through the hallways. Or, you know, as Sue mentioned, we're working on TIR-109 for off-site transportation. It's driving down the road in a truck. And, uh, you know, I know we're doing some studies as part of that tir but do you guys test for that as well, like vibration?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's part of our uh, – and I'll start dropping my standard numbers now too. It's part of ASTM D4169. Uh, that's, that's our uh, conditioning one. We also have ISTA 3A. There, so there's a couple different ones, and they have multiple cycles. I think there's about two cycles uh, of different types of vibrations and different sequences that they do, and they'll mimic uh, freight or air vibrations, and they're about an hour in total.
6: And, and not to take a step back and hop back um, in the conversation, Sue, when you were describing all the different types of events, um, a question popped up in my mind. Um, you know, what are the, I guess, routine or anticipated storage conditions or storage locations and conditions in a hospital? Um, it, it sounded like if it was anywhere else than that, it was considered an uh, event related sterility breach. Well,
0: it depends where it's at in the hospital. You know, hospitals are environmentally controlled, but there are places in the hospital that you just don't want your sterile packages. For example, you know, if somebody took a sterile package to the cafeteria or to the kitchen, or, you know, we would consider that not a good environment just because of what all is in there. If a package ended up in my decontam room just because of the contaminants in there, that package is considered as uh, contaminated. In sterile storage and many places throughout the facility, we'd monitor the temperature and the humidity and we limit, you know, who could come into the area just because we don't want that traffic that could create extra dust, my, you know, in the uh, environment.
1: So, Sue, how often do packages actually make their way to the cafeteria? Rarely. <laughs> hey, <good>. Fortunately, <laughs> back to a That's what we want to hear. Yes.
6: Yes. <laughs> or or how I often? how guess if the cafeteria ran out of knives, you can get a surgical plate or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or the cafeteria because oh, oh. it's sterile
4: processing. That's 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 a flip side. <laughs> well hi, this is this
5: is Chris. Um, I think Sue brings up a good point about really looking at where these packages end up. I mean the cafeteria aside, kind of what we see more nowadays is kind of hospitals and doctor's office all become part of these networks as you start seeing more and more procedures being done outside of the operating room. They're being done in doctor's offices and clinics, and you really have to look at that because sometimes these places might not be as controlled as the main hospital building if they're in, you know, some standalone off-site office practice.
1: And that's great a great point, point. yeah, Dave, when I were on the same thought. Uh, Chris, how, I mean... Have- have you been exposed to many of those office, those um, offices or how they handle their or anyone here? Has anyone really seen how they're controlling their environments and stuff like that? Is it does it vary that significantly? or do they not have to follow the same standards?
3: yeah i mean i think uh, like i mentioned and when i do these assessments it always includes off sites and clinics and you know even even within the main hospital building there's the er there's x-ray there's ob labor and delivery it varies all over the place i've gone to areas and as far as temp and humidity or or, um, controls there really isn't much in place it's it's wherever they can find space it's usually in a patient room inside of a cabinet and then they might have a temperature gauge on the wall where they are monitoring it with a piece of paper on the um on the wall you know and then you get to more more sophisticated areas that have a dedicated storage areas and they use closed cabinets and it's at least in the area it's behind a closed cabinet or within a cabinet system so uh i've seen it all from just inside of drawers on top of counters open space it it kind of varies um and that, and that's really, like you said, it, it really, it really puts an onus on on the experts, which is SPD, to really team up and and team up with the infection control and the folks within the hospital system to look at all those areas because we know what what the benchmark should be for that. Whereas these are just end users and they're certainly not experts in sterile storage, but uh, it gets a little tricky, like Chris said, if 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 it's a loose affiliation and that clinic is really not part of the
6: hospital, then they're kind of rogue and on their own. So in a hospital system, you know, who who is, you know, the police, so to speak, um, that is watching out for event related sterility incidences? I think I think
3: that would be infection prevention. They they usually do rounding at least once a year. They'll go through these areas Uh, Mm -hmm. and a lot of facilities will do. They'll either bring someone in like myself or internally they'll do audits uh for to prepare for the accreditation bodies that are coming in
6: interesting so hospitals are accredited to um like a almost like a quality system like manufacturers are yeah correct i mean sue you could
3: speak to this as well that you know uh people sometimes say oh amy amy is just guidelines but those guidelines are how you obtain and maintain your accreditation. And without right. accreditation, you're not entitled to federal dollars. So forget about Medicare and Medicaid payments, you know, if you don't have your accreditation. So that's really where the teeth are and the, where we say right. yep. they're not just guidelines, right, Sue? Right, right. Yeah, when
0: yeah. joint comes in, they know our sterilization standards <laughs> and they, you know, they act, they check to it.
2: I would say it depends on the facility really Uh, some facilities have a quality person who goes and audits those different things and knows about that but other facilities you have a sterile processing personnel they just stay in sterile processing they didn't go to clinics and they're not checking these other things so it's it's usually about uh, resources and you know just their knowledge of what to look for so I think it really varies from facility to facility I don't think it's consistent uh, the practiced
3: agree
0: Right.
2: Yeah, it really does.
5: The The best systems I've seen are kind of more of a team approach, where you get some people from CS, IP, quality, when you kind of get them together to do some of these audits or walk Because everybody kind of looks at it from their own point of view and has their own skill set. And if you can combine everybody, if you have the resources to do that, you're, you're going to get a much better viewpoint of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the other tools, I mean, ultimately, there's usually a quality or IP is responsible for this, but kind of to what Dave said, you, you do see a lot more consultants going around, whether they're consultants that you hire or a lot of companies do a pretty good job of kind of joint commission prep too and as well and sending people around if you request them to kind of give a second set of eyes on these things because when you work in the facility, sometimes you see it every day, you're you kind of get used to the way things are. Whereas somebody from the outside, gives a fresh set of eyes and a
0: different viewpoint. And Joint joint Commission does check um, hiding places for packages. And I have seen where they've gone through numerous packages looking for an expiration date. I've seen them look under sinks or sterile packages. And I've actually seen some facilities that lock the doors under sinks so that packages don't ever end up there so they yes they do
2: check absolutely so i want to kind of go back to this this question about time and event related and i'm going to ask this because i I get this question frequently you know dave i i know you talked about uh some facilities just have a blanket statement that says we're event related really if there wasn't an expiration date on a material like your wrapping how long could a package stay on a shelf if there were ideal conditions?
3: Well, I think the answer to that would be, number one, what what does that, how does that facility, how did that team define their policy? What did they come up with? Because I do see some facilities that have event-related sterility, yet they say anything after a year is gonna be inspected or reprocessed. And then I see other facilities that that they have no date, that as long as there's not an event, it's indefinite shelf life it literally can be almost to um infinity you know so uh that really depends on on how the facility is is defining it in the policy
0: yeah and i've seen in some cases where the packaging manufacturer actually has a date as to how long that the packaging has been validated for sterility maintenance and ralph you had brought up some really good points about those dates
5: yeah,
2: then, Ralph, Ralph, you talked about uh, the testing that you guys do uh, for you know, in-house testing for that shelf. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit more?
4: Yeah, sure. And, and again, I, I am talking about packaging that's then going to be used by the healthcare facility to, to uh, create their own uh, sterile package, right? I'm not talking about uh, devices that are delivered sterile to the facility, but uh, manufacturers of, of that kind of packaging, first of all, have to validate the shelf life of the packaging before it's used so and this this I and i understand why it causes confusion all the time so so packaging will have a date one date which is okay, it, the use by date and and that means it's been tested let's say it's 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 been sitting on a shelf or in the supply chain or whatever it left the, the manufacturing facility and it's one year two years three years whatever it is after the date of manufacture that packaging needs to be used as a sterile barrier, uh, go through a sterilization process prior to that date, uh, the expiration of that date. So that's, and, and as a manufacturer of those products, the manufacturer has to validate then the sterile barrier system, their product being used as a sterile barrier system, when that packaging has reached that date. So you have to test actually at time zero, time endpoint, let's say it's three years, and then some time point or points in between to demonstrate and validate that indeed your packaging can be used at any of those time points within the that use by date. So, um, so that's one thing. And then, and then there's testing that's being done, the validation that's being done, which really what we were talking about before, okay, now it's been sterilized. Now it's sitting on the shelf. Uh, How long has it been validated that it's still a sterile sterile barrier and different manufacturers, it's all over the ballpark, it really is. Uh, But whatever that is, that's the extent to which the manufacturer has tested. And you would not want as a facility to use a package beyond the date, the timeline for which that packaging has been tested as being a sterile barrier, an effective sterile barrier. If it's an extended period of time, let's say three years, five years, I guess it's a question then for the facility, do you really want to use a package that's that long, that's been sitting on that shelf that long? That's really what I was alluding to before. Um, You know, in a lot of facilities, Dave alluded to this, they'll say one year or two years, and then that's it. So they're event related, Actually, I mean, this is how I'm thinking, maybe Dave, Sue, Chris, you could, everybody's event-related when you get right down to it, because an event, in fact happens to that package, it should be pulled out of service, right? I think we all agree with that. I think it's this misunderstanding or lack of complete understanding that event-related does not mean indefinite shelf life. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I've clarified it or confused (laughs) it. I think that's
3: That's what I was getting, really. I think that it, it, the the waters can get further muddied I think with the way that um uh, sterility maintenance systems uh go through 510k validation testing with the FDA because whether you used an internal lab or an external lab like Nelson or um High Power for example if you only did testing for 48 hours let's just say um, or six months, or one year. If that's all that you tested for, that doesn't necessarily mean that the product can't go beyond that 48 hour period. So, th- there there's some products on the market that that's all the, the date that the manufacturer is giving you is what they tested for. Then, there's other products, uh, and Kat mentioned this earlier, like a peel, uh paper plastic peel pouch, where Maybe they actually did real life studies that showed maybe it degrades over a a course of one year. So on the one hand, you have, you know, what did you test for? And maybe the maybe the product can stay sterile for 20 years on the shelf. But the company only did the test data for 48 hours or for six months or for one year. And then you have another bucket, if you will, of products that people might have tested the materials and they show degradation and that it can't maintain the sterility for that long. So I think that's, that also muddies yeah. the waters a little bit, you know? Yeah, well, you know, yeah, we're,
4: we're, we can go to the weeds, but usually the use by date actually has to do with typically the material, whether that the, that the package is made from, and then I'm including, let's say in the self seal category, we're talking about the adhesive that's used. So that is often a limiting a limitation factor. So here's the reality. Of, so so as a manufacturer, you cannot claim beyond what you've tested, uh, or you will eventually be visited by our friends at the FDA, <laughs> and you will have a problem. Okay, so you can't in your label you can't claim beyond what you've tested. So that's a really important consideration. Then as a healthcare facility, is okay. You don't really, you know, again, you don't want to be using something beyond what the manufacturers validated. Mm-hmm. No so one's going to validate to 20 years, right? I mean, right. I I do know companies yeah. that have validated three years, five years. I don't know anyone that's gone beyond that. I will, and, and again, Austin and Kat probably, well, better aware of this thing. There have been products that have been sitting on the shelf for 20 years. Somebody pulled off and test, tested the mm-hmm. sterility of that and have found the items in there are still sterile, right? So, yeah. So, to sure. your point, but go ahead, Kat said. So, so, I yeah. say
1: yeah, there absolutely have been products like that. I mean, you know, just just like anybody else, manufacturers, we make more than we sell sometimes, right? It's not ideal if we want to sell everything that we make, but sometimes stuff sits on the shelf a little longer and you know, or we find something, something gets returned to us, and you know, we may we may still test it and it's older. But you know, when we're coming up with the development of a new product or testing a package or whatever it is. We have to think reasonably about how long we would foresee something would be sitting in a hospital, in a healthcare facility, whether in an office or an actual hospital itself. We have to think reasonably about how long we think that would happen, and as much as we want to be able to provide an endless date for our our users, it's just not realistic. So we have to come up with uh, what that what that expected time would be, and then we have to test to that because uh, Ralph is right. FDA is going to come in and they're going to ask for proof so we can give them what we've tested to and anything beyond that, the manufacturer of that, whether it be the material that's going to be used or the product itself, if it's used beyond that expiration date, we have no data to back up whether it would be sterile or not. It might still be sterile, but that risk would then rely heavily on the on the healthcare care facility and if they're if they're willing to take that burden.
3: On. Yeah, and I think I think for clarification, I think the perfect example, uh, just of what we're talking about, is the paper plastic uh, peel pouches, if you will. When because we started all of a sudden seeing these products show up with a date on them, and that meant uh, to Ralph's point that if I didn't use the peel pouch, it in one year I'd have to throw it away. Let's say for example, but it caused a lot of confusion among the users out there because. Some users thought that they meant once they use the product, it would only be good for that one year. So there's a really clear differential, uh, you know, line right there, Ralph, right? Where, no, that's a shelf life that if you don't use the product, the adhesives can dry out or whatever can happen can happen. So once I sterilize the product, I then go to my event related sterility uh, policy and procedure that would then kick in after that point. Yeah. Well,
1: Dave, that policy question when when the let's say that the healthcare facility does have a event related or two year policy. Let's say they say two years. What do you know where that time is coming from? Are they relying on the products like the manufacturer of those those wraps or those uh, self that self adhering pouches? Are they relying on that data or is that something that just internally? Uh, the healthcare facility determines themselves. Yeah, yeah. testing on that.
0: When we purchase the products, they give us a shelf life test, and that's what we use as that expiration date. So yep. if the manufacturer says that they've tested their product for one year shelf life, that's as long as it could be on our shelf.
1: Yes. So, Ralph, no, does and that again. line up with the testing that you all have done? Sorry, Dave. Uh, just okay. that it's one year, one year of a use by date, and then an additional one to two years post use by yeah. while adhered and.
4: Yeah, and I mean sterilized. the furthest, the, the longest time period I've seen somebody test after sterilization is five years. Yeah. So three years, five years, but there and then, but there's plenty of product out in the market that is quite a bit shorter than that. You know, one might might be one year or six months or, so. It's so all, at least you know, that's part of the problem, I, I think, and I the, kind of the frustration and, and challenge for Dave, Sue and Chris and their colleagues is it's all it's all over the ballpark. There is no mm-hmm. standard shelf time for items. There. And so literally, you've got to You know, they've got to be detectives and, uh, and and everything that's on the shelf is different.
3: So that's that's, you know, correct and that's, that's, that's a, where that's
4: the challenge. Yeah. The
3: team approach, that's really where the the critical you treat this and Amy gives that guidance as well. Whenever whenever you want to do a um a risk assessment, you can say, "Well, let's look at this area. We get the multidisciplinary team together and we say, "Let's look at this policy. Do we have to look at individual uh product families if you will? There's paper plastic pouches, there's blue wrap, there's rigid container systems. Do we have to drill down and, you know, look at what those uh, dates are? And we typically do. Um, You know, there's a a blue wrap uh, manufacturer that right in their IFU encourages you. It says, we did testing up to one year post-sterilization for shelf life. But then they actually say, after that point, you refer to your own hospital policy. And then they even cite the section in Amy that talks about event related sterility maintenance. So they almost encourage you to say, "Hey, we only tested up to 1 year, but if you want to go beyond 1 year, there's there's uh use your hospital policy and then they're they're sh- showing you the section in Amy that uh so this is where like you said as a user it gets really it, it gets it gets confusing and you should never make these decisions in a vacuum. You could always use like Chris said earlier, it's great when you have quality infection prevention, risk, you know, because you're making big decisions here on potential uh, future lawsuits, uh, you know. So um, get the whole team together and try to determine what what the dates are that you're going to come up with.
5: Well, Dave, this is Chris. I, I think that's why you're seeing a lot more in the standards now. They're moving away from these hard sort of dates or you must do this guidelines and going more towards that consult your multidisciplinary team because they are recognizing now that there is a lot of variables and there is no one one-size-fits-all approach so correct it does kind of depend on a lot of these factors for you to figure out which does make it more
3: confusing but kind of also allows for those variables great point Chris it's so that so it's not so much here's your answer it's here's the tools and the how to to get to your answer right like st 90 putting quality management systems in place and you know and how to make these little decisions and not do them in a bubble right yeah exactly
0: yeah and the manufacturer's date is also considered as an event so if the manufacturer's only tested for a year then that would be an event i'm just curious um with manufacturers so you test for the temperature the humidity you also test for the vibrations what else do you test
1: that um sort of what we're calling the distribution conditioning that has a series of it's like four, like six of them, depending on what um, the manufacturer determines as their typical distribution channel. But there's what we're calling what they call handling. So that is typically the handling of the product in its shipping container that, you know, brown Cardboard container that gets shipped to the from the distribution center to the hospital and that'll what the handling is typically For like what FedEx and UPS and and they would do um, Where they're picking it up they're throwing it on oh That's what it's trying to simulate they're throwing it on a conveyor belt They're putting in the back of the truck and then you get a vibration (laughs) sequence that will do um, You know vibrations that you would see in the truck then you also get And some of that will be loose load or strapped down so that it doesn't move around as much, but it's still vibrating. Um, We also get a compression test that typically happens. So when it's on a truck or it's in a plane, product is being stacked on top of that shipper. Uh, Then we'll get another cycle typically of a vibration and another handling cycle where it's, you know, being dropped to see from different heights, depending on the weight of the product. Uh, you know what sort of force of impact is going on and then there's a couple other ones that that will go in there depending on the design of the package if it's a what we're calling a breathable package which has tyvek to some extent tyvek or paper or something something that allows it to breathe then there then it doesn't get this additional high altitude low pressure i guess it's technically low, low pressure high altitude um that that's another sequence that wouldn't be done if it's tyvek but if it's not if it's you know a totally foil or totally film pouch then we will apply a low pressure uh, test and it'll last for about an hour and that is essentially to see if when it's going up in altitude does the air inside of it expand and cause a burst of some sort Um, that's one of those and another one depending on the strength of the material of the shipper we also will do like a, a concentrated impact and that's where they take a one pound dart and they'll actually drop it on the shipper to see if and that to see if there's any sort of like puncturing through the shipping container onto the product that would cause a pinhole and that pretty or some sort of breach. And that simulates, you know, when as much as we like to think that FedEx and UPS and all these companies, these shipping companies are handling our products with care because it says fragile. <laughs> they, don't, they aren't always, um, shocking, I know they aren't always. And stuff gets thrown and stuff gets, you know, dropped on top of your products that, you, that are being shipped. So that's why we also do this concentrated impact test. So there's a there's a couple different sequences and um, Austin can probably explain some more on any of the other ones or if there's other ones. Probably hey, Kat,
3: it. that's, that's
4: been Kat. one of the great things about COVID is working it from home and watching uh, Amazon deliver uh, product a product to the doorstep.
1: I have seen products left behind a car.
4: <laughs> you just don't even
1: realize it. Yeah, my contacts were left behind a car,
6: oh, no. and my
1: husband kind of ran over them. Luckily, they were still good, oh, that no. was good packaging.
6: <laughs> oh, oh, sounds so. like an event. Yeah, <laughs> that's <okay>. an event.
1: <laughs> you know that does, and you know what? I still them, so I guess that's on me.
6: Cat,
5: <laughs> hey, cat, hey, I, I got a question yeah. for you, cat. Um, yeah. When you're doing, when you're doing this testing, mm-hmm. does it kind of depend on? what you're testing for, or do you do the tests on these packaging materials as they would be shipped in their secondary and tertiary outer packaging
1: as they would be shipped
5: as they would be shipped. Okay.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's part of what, you know, Austin kind of alluded to it. It's like this invisible wall that we test to, and it's like right up to the dock to the healthcare facility. So we do a lot (laughs) of our testing or majority of our testing as it would be shipped. And a lot of times when we're shipping it, We've got, you know, protective inserts or other protective, you know, Correct. barriers in there that may not that are likely not present as it's sitting in the in the healthcare facility. But we test up until that point, and then we do a couple tests like toward the end to show like aseptic presentation is still possible and things like that. But there's that whole bit in the middle that's sort of like a a gap, so to speak, at the moment.
3: And Kat and Chris, that's a, w- a great, great, great. Uh- point to be made that that's why the KIP group is so important and this last hundred yards and it even transfers over to the the new TIR 109 that's being developed because -hmm. what happens is then we then users then trip away all that beautiful packaging that you guys put surrounded (laughs) -hmm. that product with and we either send it up and down the operating room elevator uh, 50 times, you know, or worst case scenario, we uncrate it, put it on our shelf, an off-site clinic asks for it or a surgical center, and then we're transporting it over the road. Could almost be similar conditions, maybe not by air, but yeah. certainly, like you said, it could be Alaska or it could be Texas. But we're shipping this stuff over the road to these off-site processing centers and, um, it certainly doesn't have anywhere near the uh, packaging that you guys put around it. So uh, that's why we're kind of have these groups together. And that's why it's important that um, it, it's great to be part
6: of this team to be able to explore that. Absolutely. So, Chris, when you when you heard the response to your question there, um, was it shocking? Was it kind of uh, you thought that was going to be the answer? A little bit, but I, I think it just goes back
5: to why it's important to have these these kind of groups because yeah, I mean the manufacturer is testing their product to be shipped as they would ship it out of their warehouse. Whereas once it gets to the facility, as Dave said, we're doing all sorts of things, shipping it to different buildings, sending it up and down an elevator. So hopefully we can kind of maybe come to some sort of agreement out of all this or just an understanding of what they're testing for, what we're doing with it and, maybe come to a better process in the end.
0: Yeah, and that's why I love the whole KIPP group because it's manufacturers talking to us users. And the survey, you know, when we send the survey out, it's so wonderful that people answer it because that certainly gave the manufacturers an eye-opening of what happens in the hospital. Is that right, manufacturers? Absolutely. Absolutely.
6: I think that survey and, and the 1,600 respondents—that's that, been really like the, the guiding pillar for for KIPP, at least the last 100 yards group, um, in, in figuring out what problems there are um, for us to go solve together. You know, I, and and of, uh, habits, yeah, know, a lot of aha
4: moments, especially when you're we <laughs> yeah. talking
6: about using a
4: bike courier to deliver uh, goods across town. That was that was. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs>
0: Now, my son lives in New York, and when I go there and I see these bike carriers, I'm just so tempted to say what is in there.
1: (laughs) Hopefully not. Hopefully not medical devices.
0: Oh, yes, that's what I'm hoping. (laughs) But really, I think we've had a lot of great conversations. We've shed a lot of light on both, you know, both areas. And, you know, some of the information that the manufacturers have, it's really helping us to develop the TIR 109 for external transportation.
3: yeah the timing couldn't be more perfect huh sue like it it just it literally coalesced at the same time you know right right
2: all right so i think we are just about out of time again once again we've had some great conversations it's so exciting like uh, both dave and sue said it's exciting to hear from not only the user's perspective but the you know The manufacturers and the engineers all having input, all working together, you know, trying to understand the issues that we face every day. So, again, just thank you guys. Thank the Kip group, The Last 100 Yards, uh, for participating in the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us, John.
2: So thanks again to everybody on the Kip Committee and the Last 100 Yards. Isham Nation, Episode 49, is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code FISH. As in, first in, still here. Again, the code for this episode is FISH. Okay, cut the music. We have an important announcement here. Isham is transitioning to a new educational platform to better serve you. Now, this is a new and exciting way for you to receive education from Isham. So when you go to earn your CE for this podcast and you enter in FISH, right? That's the code. You're now going to be directed to a new Isham educational site. From here, you can log in with your ISHM account and get your CEs directly from ISHM. The CE will automatically be entered in your account, or you can print the CE instantaneously. No more dealing with incorrect email addresses or wondering if the CE will be sent to you. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not an ISHM member, or I don't have an account. No worries. You don't have to be an issue member to create an account. It's really pretty simple. Just create an account and the CEs will be at your fingertips. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.